Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives again and was recorded in December of 2014. Our talk is hosted by our former president, Andrew Mazzoni, and Martin Ford. Martin received his bachelor's degree in computer engineering from the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, and his master's in business from UCLA. Mr. Ford is a futurist and a New York Times bestseller. He is the author of four books, The Rule of the Robots, Architects of Intelligence, The Rise of the Robots, and The Lights in the Tunnel. All his books focus on technology, robotics, artificial intelligence, and their socioeconomic impacts. He serves as an artificial intelligence expert and helps to manage the Societe General's rise of the robot index, a basket of stocks that profits from the growth of AI technology companies. We were lucky enough to talk with Mr. Ford about the power of technological progress, how information technology can create sustainable prosperity, and how automation will affect employment for both educated and uneducated workers. We hope you enjoyed this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Hello, I'm Andrew Mazzoni, President of the Henry George School of Social Science. Welcome to Smart Talk. On this program, we discuss and debate controversial topics with leading economists and social scientists. Our goal is to explore diverse opinions on the economic state of the world today. Today's guest joining us via Skype is Martin Ford. Mr. Ford is the founder of a Silicon Valley-based software development firm. He is a leading expert on the robot revolution, artificial intelligence, job automation, and the impact of today's accelerating technology on the economy. Martin, welcome to Smart Talk. Well, Martin, thanks for coming on the show. How we found you is unusual. Uh, uh, there's a great social scientist on the left by the name of David Harvey. I don't know if you're familiar with David Harvey, but he's written about 18 books on social science, and, and they very seldom venture out into technology. But all of a sudden, in his last book, you appeared all over it. He, uh, you obviously made an impact on him with uh, your prognostications. And having read his last book, I saw you in there and said, oh my God, what's he doing, you know, dealing with futurology and all of that? This is very unlike David Harvey. So then I read your book, uh, Lights in the Tunnel, and I said, oh my God, this guy is essentially challenging the old Luddite uh, fallacy. So, uh, and in a very intelligent way. So that's kind of why we're here. Now, the Georgists are an old uh, philosophy, Henry George started started the foundation, or started the philosophy, we, we've kept the foundation going for 80 years, we're backwater in a way, uh, uh, economic philosophy, but the time is coming because we're against monopoly essentially, and wherever it's found, and, and your, your viewpoints are apropos to that, because at the end of the day, if you're correct, very few people are going to be making everything, and everybody else is going to be the outside looking in trying to figure out how to get a piece of the action. So, with that as a uh, as a as a as a, a starter, essentially you're maintaining, and we see the signs of it that technology is going to onrush us in ways that we can't even imagine now. Even though we've seen outstanding and astounding developments from the uh, industrial revolution, 
through the Silicon Revolution. But your thesis essentially says that the automation and the software and the developments that are occurring are almost now compounding and accelerating effect, and that we can't really anticipate what is upon us. My, my initial um, interest in this began as I was working in my own business, in my software business, and I saw the impact it w that it was having. I mean, it, there was once a time where in software you would produce uh, physical media. You know, we would ship software on CDs, and there would be accompanied with that a, a physical manual and so forth, and all of that actually created a lot of jobs for average people to, to do all this uh, routine-type work. And, of course, now that's pretty much disappeared, and now software is simply downloaded directly. So I could see the, the immediate impact that was happening in my own business. But broader than that, I mean, this, this is a fairly obvious trend, and it has to do with the exponential, and it has to do with the fact that we've now been on this for so long. I mean, we, you know, everyone is familiar with Moore's Law, but most people don't maybe think about so much as Moore's Law has been happening for a long time now. It's been um, decades at a minimum. We've had uh, at least perhaps 25 to 30 doublings in computer power. Um, now, if you were to get into your car and gradually double your speed, start driving at, say, five miles, five miles per hour and then gradually double it to 10 to, to 20 to 40 like that, after doing that just a handful of times, you'd need a racetrack uh, and probably a better car. But if you could double your speed... 25 times or third times, you, you would be a spaceship. You would be, you would be traveling millions of miles per hour. And that's where we are today. So we're seeing um, just an extraordinary amount of absolute progress now because we've been on this exponential path for so long. Uh, and that's one of the things that, that really makes this different from what we've seen historically. The other thing is that information technology is truly a broad-based technology. It's everywhere. Um, the people that are, that are skeptical of this idea and they think that, that really what we're going to see here is the same story we've always seen will very often point to the mechanization of agriculture. They'll say, you know, look what happened in agriculture. You know, we, we, we had millions of people. Most people in the United States used to work on farms. Now the number is less than 2%. But, but of course, we're better off. You know, we, we, we didn't have massive unemployment as a result of that. Uh, but but agriculture was was a specialized uh, technology. It was mechanical. It was specialized. It was you know machines, tractors, and, and machines pulled behind tractors. It wasn't technology that could be repurposed across the entire economy. Um, but that is the case with today's information technology. Let me interject. I'm, I'm a layman in your field. I mean, I've been involved with industrial automation, computers, touched upon artificial intelligence, and in my time. AI was, was not robust enough, really, to, uh, to do too many things. It, it had a hint and a foreshadowing. But you're, you're saying that today the software and the AI technology is now robust enough so they can really emulate and, and take over many human jobs that you couldn't even conceive of uh, before, in addition to the, just the automation of, of instrumentation and so forth. Your comment. Right. Um, it's important to, to distinguish between the kind of artificial intelligence you see in science fiction movies where you've got, you know, you've got robots running around acting like people. In other words, replicating entire human beings in terms of what they can do and the kind of practical artificial intelligence that we have in the real world. Uh, what we're seeing is a lot of progress on that practical side. A lot of times it's in areas that we would call, for example, machine learning where you've got algorithms that essentially can look at data and, and learn from that. And in effect, what they can do is they can write their own program. Um, so we've really moved beyond the, the stage where 
Very often you'll hear people see, say uh, computers can only do what they're programmed to do. That's really no longer too true. Uh, you know, algorithms can now look at data, they can learn from experience, and they can get better and better. But they're still limited to doing very specific things. Okay, so if we, if we, we just take the acceleration of this uh, artificial intelligence, eventually you postulate that routine jobs even can be replaced or, or modified or enhanced so strongly that labor starts to be shed from, from industries. Right. I mean, primarily what we're focused on here are jobs that are more routine or, or predictable. In other words, the kind of job where you're doing things that are predictable based on what you've done in the past so that, so that an algorithm can perhaps look at data that, that reflects what's been done previously and learn how to do that job. Uh, we're not at this point talking about, you know, thinking machines that can, can replace everyone. But still, if you think about what people are doing out in the economy, uh, a very large percentage of the people do relatively this things. The potential to have an enormously important impact. And if we have that along with outsourcing of traditional jobs in manufacturing, uh, we lose jobs that way. In addition, we, we lose the uh, any learning functions on manufacturing that would... Uh, supply new, new, new uh, functions for, for labor. So you've got a double whammy going here, and, and your book, in effect, implies the acceleration of the technology in, in addition to this is going to be enough to displace a significant amount of the workforce as you see it. That's right. What do we do? What's the, what are the options here? Essentially, if that happens, I would postulate, and correct me if, you, uh, if I'm wrong, that the remaining jobs would be taken by people with more advanced degrees, uh, more more robust skill set, and basically you're pushing into a narrow, narrower segment of the population, and most people would not have the skill sets to man these positions, and these positions would be so powerful in terms of output and productivity that there would be plenty of output. The question is, who's going to be able to buy it? That's right. That's that's the general problem that we face here. Um, you know, even even at the the high level, many People with college degrees and even graduate degrees are nonetheless doing relatively routine things. An example would be a radiologist, a doctor that reads medical images. That takes a tremendous amount of training. I mean, uh, something like 14 years of training after high school to become a radiologist. And yet, th there's every reason to believe that eventually computers are going to completely take over that job. So it's not just about skill level and education level. It's really about uh, whether or not the job is fundamentally routine and predictable on some level or not. So even some very skilled people are going to be impacted by this. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's going to have a dramatic impact. And eventually, we're, the problem that I foresee is that we're going to run into a situation where we simply don't have enough people out there with incomes or purchasing power to really buy products being produced by the economies. But that wealth would be piling up. It would be in someone's hands. And therefore, you'd have relatively more and more product in fewer and fewer hands. Why couldn't I just tax away that uh, that output, for example, and in, in effect distributed as right. some well, kind well, of a yeah, super yeah, yeah. I mean, that's probably the solution, but of course that's that's a policy intervention. That's not something that, right. that right. will happen naturally, you know, through through capitalism. But no, it's uh, in fact it would be fought tooth and nail as undermining the very structure of, of of the system. So, from your perspective and your business, how are you protecting yourself against? This same uh, trend for you're in you're in software as you said, 
yeah, the systems are going to automate more and more that uh, presumably you have programs and so forth. You will need fewer and fewer of those with more robust learning systems and machines, super powerful uh, chips. How do you stay employed? Well, I, you know, I own a business, so, so that puts me in a little bit better position. I mean, no, it's going to be the people that own businesses or, in effect, own the machines that will, that will for the time being, um, be okay. And it's the people that, that you know, fundamentally sell their labor, especially doing more routine things, um, that are going to be uh, more in trouble. But in the longer run, the point is that everyone's going to be impacted because even if you own a business, you, you ultimately you sell something. Everyone in our economy sells something. So there has to be, you know, there have to be people out there who are capable of buying what you're selling. Um, so eventually in the long run, we run into a, a really a systemic problem where everyone is impacted. That's that's uh, that's correct. So that we, and if we had to put a timeline where it really bit, along with the outsourcing, which continues, although that's slowing down, if you had to put a your, your crystal ball uh, thinking to work, at at what point would you see a real crisis occurring uh, in in the West? Let's say. I think in terms of a ten to fifteen year time frame. Uh, but I, I mean, that's really nothing to guess. And, and I've talked to people working here in Silicon Valley, you know, people that really are deeply involved in these technologies. And there are some that are much more aggressive than that. They think that, that uh, within perhaps five years, we're going to see a really disruptive impact from these technologies. So it, it's really very, very difficult to predict that. Um, but what I can say is that I think it's, it's clearly coming. I mean, we're, we're going to have to face it. Eventually, and even if it if it takes longer, even if it's more like, say, twenty years, twenty five years, if, if you think in terms of uh, the life of a child and and their career over time, that really isn't that long. I mean, and especially isn't very long uh, when you compare that with the amount of time it takes us to enact uh, policies. For example, look at look at what we've done with healthcare in the United States. I mean, from the time that Franklin Roosevelt started talking about universal healthcare, it took about eighty years. Until the uh, the implementation of the Affordable Care Act, so you know, ma making policy changes on a large scale to adapt to these things is is really a very non-trivial undertaking that that probably is going to take a long time. It's much slower than the inflection point of of a technology. You're basically uh, opining in, in in your book that we've reached uh, the real takeoff and acceleration of uh, of uh, chip technology or, or computer technology, the power behind artificial intelligence and so forth. And if that explodes and it permeates quickly and within a matter of years, uh, the firms that are doing this are in the forefront will be immediately spotted by investors and hedge fund men and managers and so forth. And the financialization of, of these firms will, will, will accelerate and you'll have tremendous buying and booms on those areas and further consolidation and control. So that's going to, uh, again, accelerate and compound the technology effects. So that you're really going to have a, a situation where purchasing power is stripped from working people very quickly with no policy provisions able to intervene uh, quickly enough to prevent a disaster. Would, would I be overstating that in your mind? No, I think that's right. I mean, again, we don't know exactly the timing when it really becomes that extreme, but we see some evidence of, of this kind of trend already. I mean, you look at a company like Google, and, uh, you know, Google has become just 
fantastically wealthy and influential, but it's done it with just a tiny number of workers. If you compare, for example, Google to General Motors in its heyday, Google got less than 5% of, of the number of workers that General Motors had at its peak employment, and yet in, in, after adjusting for inflation, it generates about 20% more earnings. Some of the particular areas that you've observed that are really uh, starting to compound and automate uh, that you yourself have experienced, some industries and so forth that, that you could kind of describe for us that are, that are changing very, very rapidly in, in ways that the lay public doesn't really appreciate. Maybe you could share some of the practical experiences of, of what you've seen. Well, you can see it in a number of areas. In general, any kind of a white-collar job where you're sitting in front of a computer manipulating information, um, doing relatively routine things, that's probably going to be vulnerable. And a lot of that is happening in big corporations, um, and it's not really very uh, visible to the public. One area where you do see it is in uh, law, for example. There are now e-discovery algorithms. And it, when you have a law case, you've got to go to all the evidence, all the paperwork, and you've got to find the things that are relevant to that case and, and present that to the other side. Um, that's part of the, the rules of, of uh, discovery. And it used to be you had uh, you know, lawyers and paralegals who would go through cardboard boxes full of paper documents and figure out which ones needed to be given to the other side. Now that's all done algorithmically. Talking about uh, automation, if we, we extended the idea to uh, outsourcing, uh, in a few years, labor will be a smaller and smaller component of outsourcing. And why would anyone bother to outsource? Or am I wrong in that uh, in that in that supposition? You, you know, if you're familiar, for example, with IBM Watson, that one on Jeopardy, um, you can repurpose a technology like that to customer service and and have you know an automated system that. that has really got natural language capability. I mean, that's going to be disruptive in fields like that, I think. Uh, so eventually, yeah, less incentive to move those low-wage, predictable, routine jobs offshore. And, and in fact, we already see something of a reshoring phenomenon in some areas. Uh, what I think may happen is that those countries and companies that, that specialize in offshoring may, may be driven to sort of move up the value chain and go after... Um, more professional, higher, higher skill jobs because the, the opportunities at the low end are going to effectively evaporate as, as they get automated. So we may see more professionals and manager people like that getting, getting offshored. Um, and there will be increasing technology in the future, artificial intelligence technology that can be used perhaps in conjunction with, with smart offshore workers that will make them more um, capable in terms of doing even higher level jobs. Let's take a country like Germany that has made it uh, its business to maintain and control its proprietary technology and increase it with automation and every, every technique, technique known uh, to make sure that they're at the highest stage of manufacturing development. Is, uh, is it going to be possible for someone who's not a Germany with artificial intelligence to emulate these manufacturing advantages, for example, that Germany has, and in effect neutralize that carefully husbanded technology that's kind of embedded in their machinery and, and their software. Well, I mean that you know that's obviously going to be a race, but yes, it. I think that it. If you look at what's happening in China, for example, they're getting better and better at, at essentially importing or replicating that technology. Um, and one of the things you can say is that uh, automation 
it, the whole phenomenon may happen faster in a country like China than it's happened in uh, the developed world. And the reason is, of course, that we had to invent that technology in order to, you know, automate batteries. Uh, whereas a country like China really doesn't have to invent it at all. They simply need to import it. So I think that, um, you know, countries like Germany may, may maintain a... Um, um, you know, they may maintain a head start there, but uh, over time, certainly other countries will um, catch up and it will become easier and easier as, as these digital technologies um, make the technology more available. Let's assume we grant your premise that uh, labor is going to be caught in a wicked vice uh, in a relatively short period of time and that the uh, people who own the technology are going to be the big winners until they find out they have no markets. How would we intervene if you were the policy planner and you could be the policy planner for the world? What would be some of the steps based on your vantage point of trying to uh, forestall a cataclysm which is shaping up if nothing is done to correct the purchasing power problem that, that I'll grant is going to occur? In general, I favor some form of a, a guaranteed income. I mean, I think we're going to have to move in that direction um, ultimately. I don't think there's going to be any other choice. And that's obviously going to be involved leveling taxes on those people who are accumulating extraordinary amounts of income and wealth and then effectively redistributing it. Um, the idea of a guaranteed income or a basic income is, is actually not, you know, very often people will, will use the word socialism um, when they talk about that. But actually, it's not a, a socialist idea at all. It's been advocated by um, a number of, of free market thinkers, and most notably like uh, Friedrich Hayek, who was a big proponent of, of having a guaranteed minimum income. Um, so was Milton Friedman. So really it's an idea of, of directly redistributing income, but in a way that maintains a market, so that, so that you give people money and then they go out and they participate in the market, as opposed, for example, to having the government get directly involved in providing services to people, building housing or feeding people or you know, do, doing things that are much more intrusive in their lives. So it, it actually, uh, you know, is, is really a market-oriented approach Let to it. Let me intervene right there. We Georgists would look at it as, since we, we believe uh, in, in, in getting rid of monopoly wherever it forms, the old monopoly, the obvious one was land, where you control land, you control the natural resource, you could exact a rent, and in effect, uh, uh, you could reap where you didn't sow. Today, monopoly uh, could be an aggregation of capital that's, congealed with powerful automation. But whatever it is, if it's not a, a competitively derived uh, uh, earning, you could simply tax that and uh, fund the government with that and then pay a citizen's dividend with the residual and then allow the citizens then to figure it out uh, on their own. Uh, your comments on something like that would be similar. Right. That's a similar idea. Technological progress that we have is really kind of a public resource. It's something that ought to belong to everyone. Um, and, and the reason is that if you look at these companies that have been created in, in, the recent, uh, in recent times, you've, you've got people that have become billionaires and built these incredibly influential technologies or, or companies, but they've done it because we are really so far along that, that uh, exponential path of technology now. That, that's what enables it. Um, it's really that accumulated progress. And the first mover into it creates, in effect, a commons of users, which is, in effect, kind of a natural resource. Uh, uh, Google, right. Google has created a commons. Uh, Microsoft, with its uh, operating system and program, created a commons 
with which they were able to uh, uh, profit from. So those are areas that eventually going to have to be considered as uh, as essentially uh, a form of monopoly and and probably uh, taxed in the way that we've talked about. You know, we can view all our technology as, as a resource, not unlike oil in the ground or something, you know. Um, and, uh, there, of course, there are a number of petro-states, Alaska, for example, that's got, that have a, a southern wealth fund and pay um, essentially a guaranteed income or, or a dividend to its citizens. And I think we can, we can um, adopt that line of thinking here. Yeah, I don't think the problem is intractable if you think on those lines. I mean, it's inevitable that fewer and fewer uh, people can make more and more things. Uh, let me just switch uh, tack a little bit. Uh, the drain on resources would not necessarily be lessened by the fact that we're super automated and we can cr create wealth with, with um, e economical machines and relatively few people. But that doesn't lessen the draw economically the way I see it. How do you see that? Yeah, I mean, the, the impact on, on resources is I think that, that obviously there are opportunities there in terms of how you levy taxes in order to pay for this. I mean, one, one obvious way... To, to help fund uh, a citizen's dividend or a guaranteed income, I think would be to levy a carbon tax. And, yeah. and therefore, you'd be doing something you know, very positive for the environment. So you, you, you do have a, um, an opportunity to impact you know, environmental policy as well. Because the question, of course, is how much time do we have both to uh, solve the income problem and the resource and the environmental problem, given the fact that you know, the technology is is exponentially increasing, and the social systems surrounding that move at a relatively slow pace. I mean, it, it, right. it, it seems like a cataclysm or a big bang crash has got to be the, the, the first thing that happens before we can actually have get enough attention to sort it out. What do you think? I think there is a strong relationship between these two issues. On the one hand, we need to take on these environmental challenges. On the other hand, we've got this this um, unfolding trend going on, which is impacting people's income security, and those two things are directly related. As long as people perceive that that they're not secure economically, they're worried about paying their rent next month, or they're worried about putting food on the table, they're not going to be able to focus on longer-term environmental issues. And that's one of the big problems we see with climate change. If you look at surveys of the American people, they acknowledge that climate change is an issue, but it's also absolutely at the bottom of their list of priorities. And the top of their list, of course, is jobs, it's incomes. Um, so I really think that if we want to have meaningful progress on environmental issues like, like climate change, we need to put this whole issue of income security and income inequality, you know, front and at the top. I think that anyone who's primarily motivated by concern of the environment, they really should be thinking about income security for the working class and, and, and inequalities. These are the, the issues that they're going to have to fix first before we can really have the, um, the overall political um, motivation to take on these bigger environmental issues. Martin, let's look at the current political situation today. We have gridlock. Uh, we have people talking about synthetic issues, basically nothing like we've just discussed, uh, not that we're the arbiters here, but no one's really discussing these problems in the debates between Democrats and Republicans. And furthermore, if, uh, if I'm a New Yorker, you have to come to New York and say, this is party time. The life is good here. They're making a lot of money. The, the hedge fund guys are having a ball. The investment bankers are having a ball. 
even if they blow themselves up, the, they get the government to fund them again. Right. That's the problem. Uh, you know, that we've got very powerful elites who don't perceive the same threat to their own livelihoods and their own situations that, that average people are probably going to face from all of this. And yet they've accumulated all the power. And at the same time, we, we've just got this gridlock situation where no one is really willing to focus on it. And, and I think all the evidence suggests that the only way we're going to ever confront this is when we genuinely get to a crisis. Um, and I think that's very unfortunate. Well, I would, I would end what I consider a great interview. We'll have to have you come back. Light in the Tunnel is, is the book. It's the great read. Apparently, it's captured uh, social scientists of all stripes because he's made, Martin has made a compelling case for the onrush of technology and, and has confronted the issues of income, income distribution and all of the things that are, that are not really talked about today. So, Martin, thanks for the, for the interview and thanks for being so smart about these things. Thank you. It's good to be here. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.